Greetings from Longtime No See, the podcast. Every week, we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my God, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Ska music was born in Jamaica in the late 50s. Many wonderful musicians contributed to its development, taking influence from elements like jazz, American R&B, and the traditional Jamaican folk music known as Mento, though it was the Scottalites, as individuals and as a group, that significantly contributed to the genre's development, and Scottalites' trombonist Don Drummond in particular was a majorly influential musician for ska. He wrote and or arranged much of the Scottalites' material. He brought a sad undertone to the otherwise upbeat music and helped establish the trombone as a quintessential instrument for the genre. Today we talk about the life and times of Don Drummond, the musical genius and pioneer, and also the tragic and troubled individual. To tell his story and explain his impact, we speak with three guests, Heather Augustine, author of Don Drummond, The Genius and Tragedy of the World's Greatest Trombonist, Adam Reeves, who is currently working on a comic book series adaptation of Heather's book titled Trombone Man, Ska's Fallen Genius, and Ken Stewart, who's played keys and managed the Scottalites since the late 80s. Over the pandemic, I started listening to a lot more early Jamaican ska. And once I started digging into it, I realized how many of these songs Don Drummond played on. Yeah. A lot of them he wrote also. Yeah. I was really kind of blown away reading the book because I I didn't know where it was going to go. I was unfamiliar with the history, so I was learning as I was reading it. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting to sit down with these folks and dig in a little bit deeper. Yeah. And this is the first of a kind for us. Maybe we'll do more of them where it's more of a uh, history slash topic episode with a panel. So I was really happy with how it turns out and hopefully we'll, there'll be more of them. That'd be cool. Heather, now you wrote uh, Don Drummond, The Genius and Tragedy of the World's Greatest Trombonist. And you have, what, six six other books about ska? Yep, that's right. Mm-hmm. And also you uh, were the screenwriter for the Pick It Up Ska in the 90s movie as well, right? That's right. Yeah, thanks. All right. Adam Reeves, uh, you co-wrote Alpha Boys School, Cradle of Jamaican Music with Heather. That's correct. Now, did you make a documentary of that book or of that topic? I mean, no. Uh, so I attempted to make a documentary in 2007, and it's a whole story. You could do a podcast about it sometime. <laughs> but uh, so I started off, it came about, I, I had dreamed of making a film about Alpha Boys School, and then I had an opportunity to film a, sh- a reunion show in London, which Ken performed in. And we'll remember all too well because it was poorly attended, but and it was fr- in a freezing cold theatre and about 12 Legends of Alpha performed there. And uh, off the back of that, yeah, I started a documentary and then got into a lot of difficulties with kind of reggae politics in Jamaica. And it just didn't happen. It was too difficult. And uh, 
the book was really my way of um, addressing all of that and taking control and doing something with it. Uh, so it, yeah, it was kind of um, phoenix, phoenix rising from the ashes, I guess. And then, um, and so you're currently working on a comic book series on Don Drummond. It's it's called um, Trombone Man, Scars Fallen Genius. Yes, very cool. So through working with Heather, uh, we became great friends over a number of years. Uh, forged a transatlantic friendship, which uh, <laughs> we finally right. met each other in in Spain at a reggae festival and Rototom in 2018 and mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. out of the uh, kind of creative process of us working together uh, I don't know how it came to me but I had some blinding flash of light where I decided I really wanted to make a graphic novel out of uh, her book even though I didn't have the first clue how to do that I didn't had never written a comic book before uh, so I'm now fully immersed in that process. Yeah. Oh, we look forward to that. Yeah. It's now not going to be initially a graphic novel. That will be eventually. It's going to be a, con a comic book series, which is much more manageable in <laughs> eight parts. <laughs> now, Ken, uh, now you have been uh, the manager and keyboardist for the Scottalites since the 1988. Is that correct? Yeah, I started out just as keyboardist, but I... I was instrumental in getting the bands back on the road again mm. through some contacts. We went on tour with Bunny Whaler and then we followed it up with a headline tour. And I've been there off and on as keyboardist or manager or both for yeah, 34 years now. So today we're talking about Don Drummond and, and kind of also just everything that happened around his life in, with Jamaican music and ska specifically so heather your book is called the greatest trombonist and adam your book you know says he's a fallen genius can we talk about what it was specifically about him as a musician that was so so great you know his approach to music composition tone any anything you feel like was worth mentioning we'll start with heather since um you wrote you wrote this book in 2013. That sounds good. I think I can, I'll speak a little bit to kind of like the historical stuff. Adam, I know that you could do that too, but I think that you also can kind of speak to some of like the, the musical spirit and things like that. But I, the reason why, and I've, I've been questioned about this quite a few times um, in very various degrees of scrutiny as well, <laughs> about why I called <laughs> why I called the book what I called it, you know, because I am proclaiming him to be the world's greatest. And so that's a little controversial. And I think the reason why and what I've, I've argued um, over the years is that, yeah, he was ranked, you know, in the top five by, um, you know, various uh, critics and including, I think, you know, Dave Brubeck himself, um, had performed with him in Jamaica and kind of said that he was, you know, one of the top five that he had ever played with or something of that nature. But I think that, you know, you can kind of quibble about that, about, you know, where he would rank against others, you know, like Kai Wending or, you know, whomever you want to pick. But the point is for me, I think, and why I made that declaration is that his um, reach has been 
pretty large. And, and if you, I've, I've compared him kind of metaphorically to, you know, the Nile River, and that he fertilized the land around it. And I think that's why I can make that claim is that his, his the way that he played and the way that he made the trombone the spotlight, which was a new thing, um, and the persona that he encompassed and the energy that he had when he played and the passion, the melancholy, all of that. And the fact that he was a downtown boy, uh, a barefoot boy that went to Alpha um, and that he rose up to be, you know, a, a musician where the fans would not only pack the a place where he would be performing, but literally bend the iron railings outside in order to get closer to hear his sound. And that women would weep when they heard him perform. That's what I'm talking about in yeah. terms of World's Greatest is because that was an inspiration. And, you know, that that's why we know of, of I, I mean, I think I'm making quite a claim here and it's, it's terrible, but I think that's why we know of Ska today is because of someone like Don Drummond. You know, and, and, and of course in Jamaica too, then, you know, because of the popularity of Ska, which was largely because of Don Drummond, because during his short life, he, he wrote, and this is debatable too, but I mean, I think most people would agree well over 300 compositions, it said. Um, so he was very prolific. He was a headliner. He was a, a you know a, a minor celebrity in in Jamaica in the days before Bob Marley, and so that was a platform upon which others stand. This is open to all three of you. Um, examples, you know, a song or two that he wrote either as you know Don Drummond or within the context of Scottalites that you really feel like show his like brilliant composition and and performance style. Well, he was he was the main composer for the Scatolites. I mean, there's there's probably 150 songs we could talk about. Sure. <laughs> um, so, Marcus Garvey Jr. I mean, there's so many that are in minor keys. Yeah. But they make you want to dance like a happy fool, which is unusual. Charlie's song is from Meet Me in St. Louis, which was a major chord. And he took it and he put it into, he transposed, put it into a minor chord. Yet there's still something, I mean, anything in a minor, anything about minor chords. I mean, it's like, that's what makes you feel dissonant. And yet he still has this vivacious energy. I mean, a lot of times the chorus returns to a major chord sometimes, but not. Well, two tracks that spring to mind for me. If anyone has never heard Don Drummer before and you want an instant hit, go and check out Man in the Street, um, which yeah. just a soloing on that is outrageous. And uh, Confucius uh, is just really frantic tune. But then, you know, there's loads of tunes in that in that caliber, you know. Smiling's one of my all-time favorites. Yeah, especially yeah. with because it's got that burrow beat from Nib mm. going on in the background, and just the way that song drives, it's just like yeah. That's what we're talking about. It's a minor song. There's well, the jam. I guess is, there's only one chord. It's a one chord jam when they get to the solos, but it makes you want to dance like a happy fool and that's where you know that's where a lot of the guys get their moves from just trying to like follow drummond's bubbling if you will on the on the horn 
and just the way and you try to like match that with your feet or something and that's had plenty to do with, with the way that these guys started dancing to this stuff mm. yeah and i think that there's an argument uh which is that the kind of sound that they were creating the, the, the early scar sound is kind of like the first rave music you know it's the first music where you would you know the dancers would be lost in a trance just mm. kind of freestyle dancing you know there wouldn't be particular moves as in um you know cha-cha-cha or something but you're just kind of rocking in your own way you can't really do it wrong um and it's really loud you know and it's it, i can't think of any sort of anything that comes closer really to what people would call rave music sort of 35 years later and i've even heard lee perry say when he hears techno, he hears Scar. I want to talk about, and I know we can do a whole episode on this, but just real briefly, what is the Alpha Boy School and what was the role that it played in sort of the developing the musicality of these musicians as kids? Oh my gosh, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Alpha Boy School, if anybody doesn't know, it was uh, it is still there. It's now called the Alpha Institute. You guys jump in, by the way, too. I don't want to hog the, uh, all the... Uh... My friend just got a job there, the teacher, Mark Chalemi. Uh, he's a musician from Massachusetts and Maine that I've played with for years, and he just took on the position there. They're actually, he's, waiting. he's living with Judy Mowat while he waits for his housing to be ready. They're building him a house on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. So they're hiring some, you know, some, some pretty notable musicians to kind of help instruct there, um, which is really fantastic. But, but this school was founded in 1888. It was originally, it was established by the Sisters of Mercy. And um, it was originally uh, for girls, it was an, an orphanage essentially. Um, but then it very quickly switched over to a school for boys, just boys, and it was meant to not only give an education to what was called wayward boys, and there were periods of time when um, the boys were more wayward than others, so sometimes they went there because they could get a good music education, sometimes they went there because they were wards of the state, and they were sent there because they were causing some mischief, um, so it kind of really depends on the individual why they came there. Um, but it would give them a good education as well as give teach them a trade that they could use, a vocation, in order to get a career afterwards. So they would learn brick, brick making or tailoring or gardening or, uh, bar, you know, they now have a barber school, things like that. But one of the vocations was music because, uh, you know, during the 30s, 40s, 50s, um, that was a, a decent living. Um, playing with the jazz orchestras uh, in Kingston during the day because that was where tourists from America came. It's where the upper classes were entertained. Um, and so large orchestras would go to Alpha to scout um, the instrumentalists there, uh, like Eric Dean's uh, orchestra, Redford Cook, um, uh, Janet Enright, one of the women. They would, they would scout uh, talent there and then um, the Alpha Boys would have a job. Don Drummond was one of those boys. Um, but there were many others. That, you know. Yeah, can you list off some of those other musicians that came out of the Alpha Boys school? 
Sure. Tommy McCook was one that uh, most listeners would probably be uh, familiar with because he was a member of the Scanlites. And Ken can definitely talk about him. But there was an era right before that, well, actually kind of right around Tommy's era, because Tommy left, I believe, in 1943, if memory serves me correctly. But there was a jazz era right in there with people like Bertie King and Leslie Thompson, Sonny Gray, um, both of the Ganair brothers, so Bogey Ganair and Bobby Ganair, and Bobby just passed away recently, uh, Joe Harriet, Little G Ganair, Dizzy Reese, who's still with us. He is. He was 80 when I met him 20 years ago. <laughs> He's in New York City still. Yeah. He's a bit of a recluse, but yeah, he's still around. He performed with us in 2001 at the Prime Minister's. He was 80-something. Wow. Yeah, he's still around. That's crazy. Don Drummond was obviously, you know, one of the, the key uh, musicians that came out. So was Rico Rodriguez, who then, you know, a lot of your listeners would probably know played with the specials. Yeah. But Lester Sterling, who was with the Scatolites um, and uh, Tan Tan Thornton, who played on the Beatles, um, a Beatles tune, Gotta Get You Into My Life. Rolling Stones. Yes, yes. Aswad, a lot of, a uh, lot of, played with a lot of people. Dizzy, Johnny Dizzy Moore. Um, and then later on, I mean, Yellow Man came from, oh. from Alpha and, uh, and Johnny Osborne and Horsemouth. So it's just a roll call of who's who. And can I just say, uh, uh, because Heather, Heather reeled off a whole list of names of the early jazz era. And uh, I'm actually just writing a scene for um, Trombone Man in the comic. And it's the moment when Don joins the band. And, and I, I kind of um, do a little praise of each of these kids uh, and what, what they did. And it's like during the 1940s, which was the kind of really the golden era of the Alpha Band, uh, it, it, those musicians, you know, they were so hugely influential. This is what our book tried to convey, is that if just one or two of those kids had come out of this school, it would have been pretty phenomenal. But, uh, you know, Joe Harriet, it was, you know, considered to be, yeah. you know, on a level with people like Charlie Parker and John Coltrane. Um, you know, Dizzy Reese as well, you know, he's like a bebop trumpet player, you know, considered to be on a level with Miles Davis. Uh, and previous to these guys in the 20s, there was um, Leslie Thompson, and he started the first swing band in London, uh, you know, an, all, mm -hmm. an all black swing band, kind of copying the Cotton Club style of music, but mostly West Indians. Uh, and yeah, actually, you can see a documentary about him on YouTube called Swinging Into the Blitz. I highly recommend it. Uh, all about uh, he, Leslie he Thompson. He performed with Snake Hips Johnson. Snake Hips. Yeah, he performed with Ken Snake Hips mm. Johnson. Mm -hmm. Huge. Yeah. Snake Hips Johnson. Snake Hips. Watch the documentary. <laughs> it's a great story. And, and Snake Hips met a sticky end, unfortunately. I know it's hard to believe with a name like that. <laughs> The period that Don was there and, and maybe a lot of the other people you mentioned, um, Sister Mary, I, I can't remember her last name. Ignatius. Ignatius. Iggy. Iggy to her boys. That's right. 
explain her role in how things because didn't she kind of bring in a wider variety of music and to teach them a lot of the ingredients of of what we yeah. now think of as like ska is comprised of you know this this and this like that she was showing those ingredients to her students Absolutely. So she had a massive, and, and I'm so sorry I'm hogging the airspace, but I get so excited about this because she's, <laughs> she's really, um, as especially as a female, you know, she's really um, critical. She's a linchpin to making all this happen. She had a massive record collection. Um, it is housed today. Um, Paul Allen bought it, by the way. It is housed today um, at the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle. Um, not on display, but in the collection, um, a massive record collection. And it contained everything from spoken word, like Malcolm X, to um, Latin and folk and jazz and rhythm and blues. And she would send her boys out to purchase these records for her. She'd send them with a little money and send them downtown and, and they would pick up uh, records based upon the list that she had compiled and then she would perform them she had her own sound system and it was constructed at the um the the wood shop there by one of uh, the alpha boys um and the the um they built speaker boxes and then she would play for them and she would tell and instruct them and say okay now let's pay attention to focus on the way that the drum is riffing off of the symbol and things like that. So she would instruct them on how to key into the different Latin rhythms, and things like that. And she would play, you know, Watermelon Man and say, okay, now listen to this and, um, and really teach them. Of course, she taught them all kinds of things too, like boxing and how to play cricket. She was really quite a tomboy. And all of her, she was very light skinned because um, she was from British Guyana and uh, her mother was was Jamaican, but she a white skinned Jamaican, but all of the boys uh, thought of her as a mother and and she was, hmm. but she was really the linchpin to this whole thing. It, that's so interesting, yeah. Yeah, she acquired instruments too from um, you know, from, by appealing to the diocese for funding and to get old instruments and things like that. So she applied them with instruments um, starting when, when she started there, which I believe was in 1939 that she first came there and then she passed away in 2003. Um, and so she has a very long tenure there. 64 um, years. But she also, yeah, incredible. And she also would hire the bandmasters and she had a very good eye for cultivating the right kind of instructor. So a lot of times she would um, either choose an instructor who had been with the um, the police band or the West Indian regiment um, where the boys could also get employment afterwards. Um, she would hire them or she would hire an old alpha alumni, an old alpha boy like um, like Lenny Hibbert and like uh, uh, Winston Sparrow Martin, who just uh, was there for probably like two decades before he retired recently. Wow. We'll be right back after this. So Don, he graduated, actually before he was set to graduate, six weeks before he just got hired out. Uh, uh, Eric Dean's orchestra hired him and he got a gig basically. So he left a little early. Um, what I want to kind of understand right. um, 
this is for, for Don's story and for just the other musicians, this time in the late fifties, um, they, they're, they're gigging with jazz bands. Um, they're getting studio sessions, Scott, Scott sessions, I assume, and jazz sessions. And I kind of, what's going on in this period of late fifties for these musicians, Don specifically, and also the other ones out there working. Well, those two eras don't really overlap that much. Um, The jazz era, the jazz era was really the 1950s, the 1960s, uh, pretty much like 60s, 59, 60s, where like the ska recording era begins. And that's very early. I mean, most of the ska recordings, 1962. Oh, okay. So, so they're all doing jazz in the late 50s, essentially. And rhythm and blues. And rhythm and blues. Right. Okay. American rhythm and blues, which is the, the boogie-woogie shuffle beat kind of American rhythm and blues. So were they mostly li- live musicians at the, in, the, in the 50s, late 50s then? 100%. And it wasn't until the uh, ska era when it became, you know, a, so studio-focused? Right, because the recording era was very early on it was um mental recordings and so they were 78s and they were very very few and far between uh they were more for the tourist industry um and so like ken Corey, um even um edward sayaga at first they're just kind of dabbling in it and really doing because it was more of a novelty they had come back from the united states and brought back a you know a a recording machines like that, but it was more kind of a novelty to maybe chronicle history or to make a one-off or, uh, you know, a, a special, like a happy birthday record or something that you could purchase and give to somebody. And then some Mento, um, but it really wasn't until the early 1960s that um, recording studios were established. And Adam, I believe that you could probably talk better to this. So I'm going to pass the baton to you. Yeah. Uh... Well, the birth of the studios completely changed everything in Jamaica. And it kind of coincided, as far as I understand, with uh, the middle classes and some even the poorer classes just being able to scrape the money to buy home record players. So the the early recordings, when there was literally just one studio uh, in Jamaica, um, which was federal. Is that right, Heather? Yeah. That's right. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. It was just federal was originally the the one studio. And uh, they were those recordings early on were not really mass produced. They were just for the sound system operators. So they were kind of like specials or, you know, what we might call dub plates. Um, In fact, um, there's one tune which we mentioned in the Alpha Boys School book called On the Beach, which was recorded for Cox and Dodd by Owen Gray, it's a kind of boogie shuffle tune and it actually references Cox and Dodd in the tune and that's kind of considered to be the first dub plate. So a dub plate um, is where it's a a recording by an artist, sometimes it's a a tune that's already known, a lot of people will know this already, but uh, and an artist, a a singer will voice a, a new version of it which starts with a reference to the sound system operator uh, to make the crowd go wild, basically. And it's, you know, it's unique to them. Uh, so, yeah, those those early recordings were very much sort of 
for the sound system operators and they weren't being churned out but it was a bit later on when they realized there was actually a uh, a market for uh you know selling selling for the home use for domestic use and that's when i guess um st- studios like uh studio 1 and treasure isle opened up sorry i just want to note that that song on the beach that was don drummond's very first solo that he took oh, on a of course yeah yeah mm-hmm. So the sound systems in the fifties were they were they were playing mostly like uh, American R and B, jazz, and stuff, and then eventually getting home home recordings of ska, you know, these sort of more like homegrown style beat of a lot of the same songs became a a way to be like, hey, we're, we're the cool sound system. We got these exclusive tracks, right? And my and my. Am I oversimplifying it or is that pretty accurate? You're right. You're right. Because a lot of these early studio producers like Cox and Dodd and Prince Buster, things they had acquired these records that you reference, these American songs. They would go to the U.S. and they would buy, buy them. And then they would either play them at their sound systems to, um, you know, flop the competition and bring everybody over. They would play it really loud on um on mega, you know, big speakers that they'd strap to the tops of trees and things. And they would, um, people would say, oh, what's that song? That's a great song. And they would come over to that sound system and then buy the Red Snapper and the Red Stripe. And that's how they would make their money. And so uh, then, you know, that became kind of difficult to go to the U.S. all the time and get these records and then some extra records to sell at the liquor store that their mom had or something like that or that they had. Um, it was just too difficult to do that all the time. So they started just turning to their own wealth of musicians. And that's really, you know, how it started is it was just more efficient and economical to do it with the homegrown musicians. This is probably like a, a can of worms question, but <laughs> that since the since the homegrown musicians were already playing this type of music, why didn't they why did they play it their own style when when the time came to you know, make home recordings? Why Why did it become ska, not a continuation of just like record R&B and, and jazz, the stuff that they were already playing at live gigs? Because of the independence factor, I'd say, had plenty to do with it. It was intentional. Like Coxon, Lloyd always said, like Coxon, you know, wanted me to to develop a new beat on purpose. Like, okay, Jamaica's going to become independent. We want our own music. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see. Yeah, it makes sense. Because 1962 was the Jamaican independence. Right. And it was well anticipated, you know. I think the competitiveness between sound systems has a lot to do with it. Like they're always nudging, even now, you know, uh, you know, Jamaican music is very competitive and they're always nudging each other forward. You know, if somebody does, if somebody hits upon a sound, then they'll milk it and keep doing that for a while and get as much out of it as they can. So I think they were just constantly experimenting and just finding out what works. And then when they found that within the 12 bar blues, um, there was, you know, there's this kind of pulse, that, you know, in the background, even in American R&B, there's a, a chain, chain, chain. You hear it in the, you know, in, in the rock and roll type R&B and, and it's in the Jamaican R&B as well. It's on, on the guitar. Um, just the scar, the, the roots of scar are there, and they just brought that to the fore because it made people dance more, and you know they were just following what worked. 
But I think too, you know, like I think that there's a little bit, yeah, there's some overt intention there, like definitely the independents and definitely they want to try to capitalize and milk things. And, but I also think that some of it was kind of accidental because in my opinion, I think if you listen to a song like Easy Snappin' by Theo Beckford, which was 1959, probably recorded a bit earlier, but Theo Beckford was a fantastic pianist and he's playing that B, that boogie woogie shuffle B on the piano. And it is a very fine line between that and what we know as the ska beat. And I think that they, I mean, some of them, I think, in my opinion, may have been trying to emulate that sound, but just didn't get it right and got it right. You know, it's like, it's a little slippery. Well, it has plenty to do with, with what's going on with the drum, the difference, you know, and the bass too, but the drum is playing, you know, like if you listen to the, the drum bagel, I think is mostly the drummer on most of the early, early stuff. And he's just playing, you know, on the beat. Bom, 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 bom. And then it's Nib that comes with the more like Africanized Latin offbeat thing going yeah. on. Latin rap. I mean, there's so many flavors of it. That right. old burrow thing that he does. Right. Yeah, so yeah, so Lloyd Nib is playing that Buru beat, and the Buru drummers were the African drummers. They were the slaves that had started their own communities when they were, you know, ostracized um, after the, you know, emancipation, and and they lived in the hills, and they they were the drummers that then merged with the more spiritual um, Rasta communities and became kind of the the musical. Um, essence of the Rasta communities in the early days with like Leonard Howell and um, and so that came into the music too because you have to remember that many of these musicians after they're playing in the jazz clubs and recording in the studios they're going into the hills and they are in musical communion with the rock you know in the Rasta camps during the jazz era Don is uh, quickly becomes a star locally in in at these, uh, in these scenes? Yeah, very much so. He's headlining his own quartets. Mm-hmm. You know, Don Drummond Four, and... Especially amongst the musicians, he was highly revered. And he wasn't really a chatter. Like, if you, if you didn't talk about music, you probably weren't going to talk much to Don Drummond, you know? And so then in the early 60s, when, when we, we switch over to ska and studio recordings... The Don's life and the life of his contemporaries was basically being in the studio all day long and just pumping out songs, right? It was until 63-ish that they actually got put on salary by Coxon. Mm-hmm. But before that, it was, yeah. I mean, they always talk about, yeah, we get through one session and so-and-so's outside waiting for us with a box of beer and a bag of ganja and this and that. And oh, come on to my studio now, and this and this could go on even again after that session, you know. Yeah. Sometimes it'd be up all night, and somebody else still trying to get them to come do more. But at some point, you got to say, no, it's time for bed. But <laughs> and, and they and they and in the in this period you're descri- describing, they weren't paid very much either, right? It was which is partly why they recorded so many. It wasn't much, but it was to them, it was, it was money, you know, it was better than nothing. And 
and that's the thing you know it's like okay i can go home to go to bed or i can go make some more money and whatever the going rate was per side and then so and so come along and look along and try and get them to come for you know raise the the till a little bit maybe I can't even talk in turn. I know it was something like two pounds a side. That yeah, was that's like what I heard. unbelievably good to them. So that they make, they did ten songs and made twenty pounds in one day. That's like, oh my god! Like they probably pay rent for the month and groceries and like that's a whole bunch of money, man. Back then, yeah. <laughs> no such thing as royalties, of course. Yeah, no royalties, just whatever you make. Yeah, I remember what. When I was cognizant of it, I think the pound was around 380 or something in the mid-60s. So think about how many dollars that is, how far that goes in that time in Jamaica. That's like... <laughs> and the men were, you know, they were always buying, a lot of them were dapper dans and buying the, the state-of-the-art fashion clothes and be all decked out. I mean, we all see it in the in the films and, and stuff, you know, like some of them were really top dresses. Lloyd Nib was definitely one. His wife always said that, like mm -hmm. he was one of the most well-known, like decked out at all times. Yeah. <laughs> and you saw that carried in all the way to through life. Like he was always dressed up. Very rarely would you see him. Well, jeans and a t-shirt became so acceptable eventually, but the, so the Sconalites formed in 1964. Uh, Tommy McCook was the band leader. He he formed it, I assumed. It was his concept. Well, again, you know, there was they. He was the last. They they wanted him in the band, but it, I I would say it was Nib's band. Okay. I always say if you listen to everybody talk, it was Nib's band, and they all I sit there and agree to that one during. During David Rodigan's interview in 1984, which is a great source of information, and people had much better memories when that interview was done. But they all sit there and talk about it. It's like, you know, they, they waited for Tommy to get through with his hotel deal at Courtly Manor, and they wanted him to leave the band because Nibs couldn't leave the band. But it was basically all of them saying, hey, look, we've had enough. Oh, plus Tonimo had the connection. So it was just a matter of getting Tommy to, to, to finish up his contract and come lead the thing. But they, it was the Tawari family who owned all the theaters and they had, they were friendly with Tonimo and they wanted, you know, a steady band for all this stuff. And then it was just so many people interested in, in having them, you know, so the, the primary reason for the band was to do live gigs? Yeah, and, and it had plenty to do with the fact that, you know, all these hits that already broken that they played on and nobody knew who the heck they were. So it was like intentional, like, yeah, let's form this band so and play the music that's popular that everybody's listening to already and make them know that it's us that created. Tommy McCook is, you know, his name is... is uh on the band shells and he gets top villain because he's the oldest too and so he kind of took over as the manager there was a pool of musicians playing on these tracks but uh the the members who formed scottalites were did a lot of them they were they were some of the most prominently working musicians right before they actually formed the scottalites yes oh yeah don drummond um 
he, like you said earlier, he wrote almost all of the Scottalite songs, right? Well, he was the, he had the most original tunes of what they played. Cause they played a lot of covers, like a lot. There was, they were getting music from here, there and everywhere. It's, it's actually a bit disappointing at this stage of my life. Like, Oh shit, another cover. Now we just found another, like even guns of Navarone. They didn't, they not only, they, they stole the arrangement note for note. They didn't, you know, there was definitely, um, <laughs> They just turned it into ska, but I can't remember it. Al Cadillo or something like we found the original arrangement and it's it's almost note for note what they did. So many instances of that. This is not unusual. They covered almost every song on the Watermelon album by um, Watermelon Man by uh, Mongo. Mongo Santa Maria. Almost every tune was ska and the name changed. And Pussycat, I mean, all that stuff. Which I can't believe that Coxon never got sued for that. Like, especially Mongo Santa Maria was a very popular artist in the U.S. I can't believe that nobody ever chased it down. <laughs> well, there was a lot of that, though. Nobody really paid attention to copyright laws then, right? Well, copy wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Jackie and Disney would say. Copy wrong. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> So I, I think I remember, uh, so Don just, didn't he have like uh, notebooks of his compositions? Like he just wrote a lot of music. Yeah. Well, they found some of that music after. So when Don basically was taken, you know, for, for murdering Marguerite, his apartment was sitting there and Lloyd Nib was one of the first ones who got it in there and, and got the music out of the drawer. And that's some of the music that's on the, I think both the, um, well, mostly the return of the Big Guns album, but also I think maybe one or two songs from the Rolling Steady, which is the real reunion album. Mm. Make no mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that that if you listen to that, you'll hear the real sound of the reunited Scatolites. The the Big Guns album is watered down and there's no Dizzy and there's no Jackie. And it's ironic because those are the two that actually caused the reunion of the, of the band. And already within a year's time, they had already had enough fighting and arguing that Tommy just didn't want to deal with them. Mm. So that's why there's, they're not on the Big Guns album. But that's, I don't want to talk too negative stuff, but <laughs> that is the real reunion album. Rolling Steady. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Would you say that when the, once the Scottlights were a formal band and they were gigging live, that they changed or evolved the the style of Ska or maybe made it more formal? or They perfected it, I would say. Uh, that's the thing. The Scottlights didn't necessarily create ska, although most of the individual members there were there as it got created. But they certainly, as as the as the Scatolites, they pretty much perfected it. And you know, it's like I don't think anybody else may ever play it better. Right. <laughs> they definitely elevated it because they're put they're trained jazz musicians and so you have all of these layers and they're using a jazz format too of this theme and variation where each one kind of comes in and so a lot of if you listen to some ska that is not that that maybe doesn't 
have as high quality of a musicianship, um, it can seem kind of rote and formulaic and without spirit, you know, it just doesn't have that um, passion that the Scatolites brought. And that's because of their talent. Is there a quantifiable thing that they elevated in their, in the, so they were together 18 months uh, in that, in that period of time that they did as musicians that maybe, you know, the beat or anything specific that kind of like, you know, that they did to, or is it the, uh, the style of arrangements? I'm, I'm not sure. If- well, it was Nib's drumming that was, that was solidified what was ska. I mean, that's what made it became, become ska, officially ska was Nib's playing, basically taking the, the parts, the three different parts that, like, done by the funde and the jimbe and the repeater they and now he's playing all three of those parts on on the trap set mm. so basically yeah. that's what made it we officially came from just you know some some slightly modified boogie woogie blues yeah and changed it into actual ska was definitely near drumming yeah interesting yeah a lot of people talk about it a lot of people have written books about the whole thing. Gil Sharon has has a great book about the whole drumming style of Nib. Well, I mean, as somebody who has spent many years dancing to ska and obsessing over it, uh, it's just that honk, you know, that that driving pulse. That that's what hypnotizes me, and that's um, I'm kind of listening out for when it's really rough and heavy you know and there's a lot of cheesy stuff the scatolites did there's some stuff that sounds like elevator music which i actually really like i really appreciate but the stuff that gets me you know up on my feet is you know those driving hypnotic tunes and it's almost all of them are don drummond songs yeah absolutely and it's that it's that powerful honking pulse and when it you know when it's like I mean, I don't, I don't even know how you how you separate, you know, what makes it great, you know, what technically, musically, but sometimes those, the, the scar beat, the actual pulse just absolutely just cuts through. And to me, that that's that's what part of what elevates them. But Don Drummond as a composer, you guys talked about this earlier about how he would often write in a minor key. And yet make it, you know, in this this uplifting, danceable tune. Do you know like a little bit about his songwriting influences, where, where this came from, this approach that he took? Or is that kind of a, mis- a mystery a little bit? I mean, it's kind of a mystery a little bit. I mean, I know from talking to Carlos Malcolm, I mean, he talked to me about how he saw one time... He was writing um, upside down. He was trans, like he was writing in, I don't understand, like but he was writing it upside down and Carlos Muck was absolutely dumbfounded. He had come over there to pick him up to go to practice. And this was how he was transcribing that song was by writing it upside down on the staffs. Um, so I don't know what the method was, but, you know, uh, I just think that he, given his, talent and mental condition i think he was experiencing things in a different way i want to touch a little bit on 
his mental state. Now, Heather, you talk about this a bunch in your book, and and one of the things you say is that there's some thoughts about what his diagnosis was, and there's also a lot of debate about it. And but but one thing that is consistent is that everyone said he was a bit weird. He was a bit off. But he took lithium, didn't he? I don't know about lithium. I think lithium, not that I found, lithium might have been a little bit later than Don Roman's era as far as treatment. But some of the medications that he was on are no longer legal because they're when they're not prescribed mm. properly and they're frequently not prescribed right properly like during this era because there wasn't a lot of training medical training on these new um like the new pharmacology and things like that um they're 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 lethal they're lethal now and so he also had electroshock therapy which is not which was very primitive in that era and then yeah um, and then the medical officer there at Bellevue also was growing cannabis as a form of treatment, which in his condition, um, he potentially he potentially had schizophrenia, although sometimes that was a misdiagnosis among young black men, um, then that could have exacerbated his condition. But there's, um, you know, they didn't know then what we know now. And even now, you know, what we know is still fairly primitive, but, um, and, you know, he wasn't treated fairly, he wasn't treated properly in Bellevue. Bellevue, I mean, Adam, you've done a little bit of a deeper dive into this lately, but I mean, they were kept in cages and I've, I've been to Bellevue twice in the, in the last like 10 years. And what I've seen in the last 10 years was a horror story. I've been there twice and the things that I saw were just gut-wrenching. And I can only imagine what it was like in the 50s and 60s. Uh, Heather, briefly, can you just describe what, what you saw? So I went around the back of the property um, and this is where there were some of the residential wards and they were not attended by any staff or administration. and we're out we're outside and the wards were um extremely uh i can't even describe how it was um they're basically like shanty buildings um and people with gauze wrapped around their heads um blood on the gauze these were things i witnessed myself um, the buildings were dilapidated. Many of them looked like they were there from, you know, a, a hundred years earlier and were in a severe state of disrepair. Um, graffiti, gang graffiti all over the um, broken out windows and boarded up windows. I went into an area where they had occupational therapy um, and there were attendants in there and there was, uh, I mean, hauntingly enough, there was a man who was sitting down playing the trombone. It was like the, seeing the, like the ghost of Drummond when I walked in. Um, but he was there and his, you know, his, he was in a bad shape. He had wounds on his feet. Um, they were wrapped up, but not in any kind of a hygienic way. Um, this was, you know, 10 years ago, and I know that there's been a lot done since then because there's been a lot of exposure and a lot of controversy that's come to light, but the medication that Don would have been on would have rendered him basically a zombie because they needed to control him. And Don himself escaped many times because of the treatment that he was getting, but he also would put himself back in because he needed help. 
so the the popular th- theory is that he had schizophrenia, but there's also uh, bipolar was one was another thought, and then right. some people think that maybe it wasn't any specific mental uh, disorder, uh, just maybe um, the conditions that the conditions that he grew up in and, and was always living in were more p- important than a, a pre pre existing mental condition. Correct. Correct. I mean, it's really hard to diagnose in hindsight, but yeah. Sure. Yeah. Can we, can we say who, uh, can we explain who Anita was? And um, yeah. so we can kind of explain that, that whole story and what, what ends up happening with Don, with Don and stuff. Yeah, sure. So Anita Mafood was, uh, she was a rumba dancer and her stage name was Margarita. Um, she had taught herself to rumba dance. She was with a dance troupe for a little bit. She was from um, a, a middle-class family. Uh, her father was a fishmonger, a businessman. Her family, his family was pretty well connected, his brothers and uncles and things like that, but not in a way that was good. You know, the uncles were always trying to kind of outdo one another, and there were some suspicious fires at his fish shop and things like that. Her mother had, um, her, well, her father was abusive. Um, she was one of four girls. Her mother had tried to kill herself. She was uh, an alcoholic and had tried to kill herself one time with a gun that was unsuccessful. It disfigured her um, and left her in a, a terrible state. And so then she, a couple of weeks after getting out of the hospital from that one, killed herself by throwing herself in front of a, a, a car, a street car. So she had a terribly traumatic life, um, married a boxer by the name of Rudolph Bent, who was also very abusive. Um, she had two kids, um, but she was a uh, very beautiful, very talented, and she would headline shows as a rubber dancer as a way to attract uh, patrons to come to the clubs to hear the bands play and, and spend on food and drink. So she made a name for herself and would also, um, she, she started uh playing at the same clubs as, as Don Drummond as early as uh, about 1955 that I could find in the, in the newspaper records. So maybe even before that, um, but they would convene at the Warica Hills. She, she was a frequent uh, participant in the Warica Hills where she would dance to the drums of Count Ossie and the, the musicians that gathered there. Um, and so she had a relationship um, when it turned Romantic, I'm not really sure, but I can tell you that um, she was divorced from her husband when she moved in with Don. I mean, I guess, who knows? But um, as far as I could find, and then um, she, he didn't like her dancing. You know, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, he had grown up at this all boys school and had, you know, mental issues, and um, he didn't. I would imagine, especially like in the culture and things like that, um, he did not, you know, he did not treat her well either. Um, he was abusive to her as well. And so uh, he didn't want her dancing. And she was headlining at a club one night and this was on New Year's Day and, and he told her not to go. And she, uh, he, he had, um, you know, his medication rendered him sleepy 
Um, a lot of people like to say that she gave him his medication or didn't give him his medication or something, but you know, that's really putting the blame on the victim. At any rate, when she came back from dancing and he awoke to find that he had missed his gig that night, uh, he was very angry and he ended up stabbing her four times. Um, she bled out into her lung and essentially suffocated from the wounds. Um, and from that point on, he was catatonic. He did not speak. He did not speak. And so wow. the, the, the case, the, the trial didn't take place for another year and a half because he wasn't, um, the judge deemed that he wasn't fit for trial at that point. Um, and there's some pretty good records, um, in the newspapers when you can find them, um, of coverage of the trial. It was a big deal. I mean, people really paid attention to this trial because it was a big deal because she came from a well-to-do family. It's a business family in Kingston and he was a famous musician. Um, but ultimately he was sentenced to, um, to go to Bellevue again, mental institution, um, at her majesty's pleasure, meaning uh, for until the, you know, the crown decides that he can get out, which could be forever. It, it didn't have any definite time. Um, people did think that, you know, that he probably would have gotten out one day, but uh, ended up dying um, in 1969, um, according to his death record, you know, from the same kind of uh, physical ailments that would have been caused by the medication he was on. There's all kinds of conjecture that her family had or her father had him murdered. That, or that wouldn't be possible. Her father was already dead. Her father had died uh, before he was even sentenced and even put into Bellevue. So, well, I mean, he was awaiting trial in Bellevue, but that wouldn't have been possible. So he was dead before Drummond was dead. So um, I know there was some outcry. Hugh Malcolm was a uh, drummer um, and he wanted, you know, Drummond's body exhumed and an autopsy done and things of that nature. So it, but I, I really feel confident that it really, it was, I mean, it's hard to say if, if something was put on the death certificate um, that was incorrect. I mean, certainly that's possible, especially uh, in Kingston during these days, that could have been possible, but I really don't think so because I talked to some people who had seen him, you know, in the months prior and said that he was not, he was not in a good condition. He, his body, his feet seemed swollen, which could have been a, you know, the cause of the kidney problems that he was suffering from and things like that. So I feel confident that he was not receiving proper treatment and was ultimately killed by the improper treatment. So he was, a, he was showing signs of maybe not doing well there, maybe not responding to the medication well or whatever, but, and nobody really doing anything about it basically. That's right. You know, and given what I observed at Bellevue, I'm, I'm not surprised that um, he would not have been getting top-notch medical care that's for sure um but there is some evidence I mean just to kind of I don't want to end you know I don't want to be kind of all doom and gloom here but you know he did you know I, I I did talk to some people who who recall that he worked with a fellow patient there um who went by the nickname Trommy you know it's a very common nickname for a trombonist but um a a trombonist that was a patient there and he worked with him on learning the trombone and performing on the trombone. So I think that's kind of, uh, you know, a high point. So at least he wasn't completely catatonic in that he was able to work with this uh, fellow patient, which I think is kind of nice. 
be right back after this. What I wanted to kind of talk about now is that the Scott, uh, so Don, Don was in the Scottalites for like 16 months, but then they, they went on for another few months and then called it quits. Um, as I understand it, they kind of, without Don, that kind of, it, it imploded because they didn't have Don. Do, do I understand the story correctly? Well, I mean, I'm sure there was much, uh, many other contributing factors because just the, the amount of egos and, and personalities in that band at one time, just, I mean, how long could it really ever have lasted, you know, and, and mm-hmm. everybody get along and smile and like what's happening in business way. And just, you know, there was, there was a lot of, of things that one could be disgruntled about, I suppose, but I would say that certainly Don's, absence was was the catalyst for the beginning of the end they tried to hang on but people wanted to go in different directions i think a lot of venues didn't want to book them after that because they were associated with this murder you know it didn't wasn't a good look Mm. it kind of stuck to the band after that happened and i think that was part of what drove them apart was that you know it was this big thing hanging over them Wow, so there was still a backlash even though he was no longer in the band? Because he was like kind of the star of the band too, right? Even though they were all kind of well-known musicians. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know how, um, whether that came across earlier when we were talking, but Don Drummond was a big star in the early 50s. You know, he was he made a big splash as a solo jazz artist. And this is all in Heather's book, by the way. So um, he was in the Eric Dean's, band and for various reasons he fell out with Deans Uh, partly it was they went to Haiti for a tour and while he was in Haiti he was only about 21 at this time or 20 even uh, Don's grandmother died and he was close to his grandmother and Deans kept that kept it away from Drummond that this had happened because he wanted him to stay on the tour because he was attracting people, you know, to the shows. He was a big draw. And uh, he didn't find out till he got back to Jamaica that his grandmother had died. And, uh, you know, th- that flipped him out a bit. But, and apparently he was never quite the same again after that. It was really disturbing. He flew into a big rage and a depression and went into, a, into Bellevue voluntarily for a while. And when he came out, he founded his own band Don Drummond 4 and made a massive splash and became like the biggest star in Jamaica at that time you know he was filling the dance halls so he had this whole phase of being this hot young jazz star so yeah when he joined the Scatolites they were like a super group but he'd already you know that was well over 10 years earlier from the band forming and you know he'd been through all kinds of problems in between times, you know, the, the solo thing fizzled out and then he was just kind of down on his luck for a while and playing in other bands and he couldn't maintain it. I see. Also at this period, we're, we're kind of at the precipice of uh, the music changing to rock steady too, aren't we? Well, yeah, late 65, early 66, somewhere around there. And you can hear the, the ska started to slow down. So people just, you know, 
people have various explanations and, and justifications yeah. as to why that happened. Too much heat. But yeah. Jamaica was, I'm sure, was pretty hot most of the time. But the I'm, I'm one thing I'm kind of curious about. So Rocksteady, so Scott Scott was very horn focused. Rocksteady was a bit more vocal focused and less horn focused. Is there any connection between Don, Don's sort of departure of the music scene and suddenly the, the Jamaican music becomes less horn focused and more vocal focused? Or is it just a coincidence I'm looking at? I mean, I would say it was it's more of a coincidence. But it also was a financial thing, you know. I mean, the producers didn't really want to spend the money for horns, you know. It got, and especially as it, as it got into reggae, then it really got like that. You know, it all became more, much more about the organ. And then, of course, as time progresses, horns come back, and all kinds of things happen. But you know, looking back, you know. We- many decades now um what do you think don's part of the story is in the development of jamaican music i mean we think of him as you know part of the scottalites and part of this early period but his impact goes way beyond the development of ska or or do you do you think that well certainly yeah like i mean like you say he was much much of a star way before the scottalites existed so i think his, his actual playing is, is what did it, you know. I'm, I'm not sure how much, how many compositions he had written when he, and how many he was performing when, like jazz stuff. I really don't know. I don't know because there's that album Jazz Jamaica. I don't know if he wrote any songs on it though. I think most of them are written by maybe one or two songs are written by Don and that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I haven't looked at the cover in ages. I don't really remember, but. But um, I, I would say that just his playing is what, is what really made his name, you know. The composition came later, certainly. In the, uh, I think he was probably having hits with Duke Reed before Scatolites existed. I can't name one per se. I'm not sure when Man in the Street, I don't know the chron. I'm not a collector at all, so. I don't know the chronological order of his tunes really very well. I always find that the whole the whole uh, music is my occupation. Uh, I just don't understand that. That's a weird one to me. Like the fact that he pretty much rearranged Ring of Fire, and I don't know if people. You know, if there was the producer that put his name on it as as composer or whatever, because I just think that that would be a little bit of a bold move for a musician, especially if you know that a, a the tune came from the states and was a hit or was popular. Like, you're really going to try and say rearrange it, say that you wrote it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that one. Yeah. The bold move for sure. <laughs> well, I think that the, the producers were the, the guilty parties as far as the what could potentially be perceived as plagiarism or you know, claiming yeah, it's plagiarism. Basically, you claim that you wrote a tune and it's somebody else's tune, and you know that. <laughs> but I think the producers are the ones that that did that. You no, know, it wasn't 
specifically, I mean, I can't say for sure, but I know that Lester will refer to certain tunes as, oh, that was Roland's tune. It's like, no, Lester, just because Roland showed up with the tune, with the chart, it doesn't mean it was his tune. <laughs> Quite the contrary, actually, because but when they did, I know that when Heartbeat did the tribute to Roland album right after he died, they couldn't find one song that he wrote. Huh. I, I you know, and I, I suggested a couple. I know that he wrote one of the ones on Big Guns. Bubble, the trombone player told me that he helped him with it. <laughs> if um. If we played the mental game of, um, you know, what would have Don? What if there had never been a Don Drummond? What would have, what would have been, you know, the the music of Jamaica? I'm curious what either of your thoughts are on that. You know, how things would have been different. I think, if I may, I I think it would have happened regardless without Don Drummond. I think the force of creativity. That's kind of the way I feel through there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was definitely. A super catalyst. Yeah. And he was inspiring, especially like on stage. I know that Lloyd always told me he'd play off a of Don solo big time. You know, that's what started doing that symbol thing that Lloyd does. You know, it's in the middle of the song and to kind of going along with what he already heard from, from Drummond. And, you know, they played off each other big time. And uh, it probably. The actual, like, would Scott not have happened? No, I think it would have happened. Since Rico actually was one of the most uh, present trombone players in the early days when it was just the boogie-woogie mm, stuff. On the Clujay record. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Because it was Sterling and Rodriguez and probably Dizzy Johnny. Mm. Do you think, though, that... Um Don Drummond brought maybe a higher level of musicianship or composition to ska that maybe we, you know, kind of, we look back at it in a, in a different way because of him. I think the alpha boys did generally. I think this, this is the question that we got asked a lot about our book, you know, what did the alpha boys do? And yeah, I think it was Don Drummond for sure, but it was also just the alpha boys because they learned, to, they they studied classical music, you know. They went, they learned Mozart, Bach, and Beethoven, and Tchaikovsky, and they learned marching music, and they learned calypso and jazz and all this stuff. And they learned to read, you know. They learned to sight read really young. So when they joined the music industry when it was forming, you know, all the producers they just looked out for these alpha boys because you know there was musicians coming out of the army who were competent and could play, but they didn't swing and they couldn't just arrange tunes with their, with their eyes closed, you know, yet the alpha boys could just turn out tune after tune after tune all day long effortlessly because, you know, they were so well drilled from a really young age. And Don Drummond was part of that. He definitely was the head of the pack. Uh, You were asking earlier, you know, what, what would there have been without him and uh or what would what did he specifically bring and my feeling about that is that 
that well what later got called the far east sound which augustus pablo with his melodica took to great heights that kind of really um minor key eastern sort of ethiopian middle east sound i call that the roots yeah. vibration you know and i think there's you know every major city in the world now has a band that sounds like the scatterlights and has a trombonist who emulates don drummond um so you know he is like i mean sure rico and vin gordon as well they're like the trio of alpha trombonists who uh created that sound uh they're all as important in a way but yeah the, i'd say the fact that and the trombone is just featured so heavily all throughout scar and reggae goes right back to don drummond without a doubt yeah, I would second. I would second that, though. That's definitely if there's a summation to make. Mm-hmm. That's probably it. It's, the the placement of the trombone in, in this style of music, like it's one of Jamaica's national treasures, man. Yeah, like, like Joe Harry and Dizzy Reese and some of these other dudes that went to a next level, went abroad, whatever. Don never made it abroad. Well, I guess probably Haiti or. I know Dean's went here and there. They went to Belize, I think, when it was still called British Honduras. Yeah, I think in Heather's book, it's uh, that he went to Haiti, and I think that was it in terms of leaving Jamaica. Before we wrap up, I just I would love to just share a few moments sure. about what I'm doing with... Um, Please. Well, I'm turning Don Drummond's life story into a comic book series and bringing it to life. Um, Please. Which is a massive labor labor of love i mean the story is so big it's more kind of the hardest thing is what what not to include there's just so much to it and um comics are hugely labor intensive and um costly to produce i mean we're talking you know hundreds of dollars per page so every single page has to be really well thought about and uh, you know what needs to go in but I'm um, trying to bring to life this incredibly dark, sad, sorrowful, sorrowful story, but with a lot of joy as well. And I'm working with a Cypriot uh, digital illustrator, Costantinos uh, Pistorius, uh, who's also known as Virgin Cross, who has this very uh, particular style. Uh, he does a lot of sound system art, reggae LP covers, that kind of thing. And he he runs his own sound system as well so he's he's you know right down with the story and we're you know really studying right now a lot of the the visuals of kingston in the 40s the 50s the 60s and we're looking at how those eras are different you know we need to define each era visually so that they they distinct from each other and we're literally getting down to like cars lengths lengths of dresses um that kind of thing you know how mm. each era changed uh and the, you know the the atmosphere of of the ghetto at that time and and recreating alpha and the characters and you know it's a massive undertaking and um, you know it's a huge honor to be doing it and uh and it's because of heather really that she wrote the book uh, so it's it's all based on her research you know it's it's literally you know it's an adaptation of uh the her her biography that she wrote yeah i can't wait to see it
Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash in defense of ska you will get monthly bonus episodes extended interviews and commentary per episode and access to the in defense of ska discord in defense of ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week so you should go check out their other projects as well co-host adam davis has an amazing band called omnigon give them a follow on instagram and twitter It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On that note, we leave you by saying... Ska now more than ever. <laughs>